Um, okay, so this paper is about the British graphic artist, Arthur Rag, um, who was very prolific and very well known in Britain in the interwar years. But to tell the story of Arthur Rag, it is necessary for me to tell the story of this man, um, James Glasby, Jim, who was my grandfather, born in 1911. Um, and when we went to my grandparents' house, um, our treat was to go in the garage, which had floor-to-ceiling bookshelves all the way around, and a constantly updated supply of books that he'd got from second-hand shops and jumble sales, and we would go be allowed to go and choose a book. Um, I assumed this was normal, how everybody behaved with their grandfather. Um, but to me, he was just a kindly old gentleman with white hair who gave me sweets and told stupid jokes. Um, he died in 1983 when I was 14. And my grandmother asked me <coughs> if I would like his book collection. Um, she identified me as somebody who had an, who, who, who had an interest who would, she thought would benefit, I didn't realise. Um, and so uh, we're talking several thousand books, um, which I took on. Um, and this became my education, particularly in a strand of the British left. I didn't realise this when I started working through them. But authors such as Robert Tressel, George Bernard Shaw, Oscar Wilde. I worked, started working through, you know, I would just trawl through the books. Uh, and as I said, there were several thousand of them. There were, there were lots of books that I didn't, you know, that I would have probably looked at once. And you know, maybe glanced at them when I moved house. Um, a few years ago, um, I had a fairly cha major change in my life and was moving house and decided that right, I needed to rationalise this. I couldn't carry on carrying several thirds, you know, two thirds of which were probably set painting from 1943 or, um, you know, herbs, um, books about herbs. And so it was like, I better actually start going through these. And I came across this this book, you know, and I was just looking through, and I, I actually, I opened it up, and it says, Thy Kingdom Come, A Prayer in Black and White for Ourselves and the World Today, by Arthur Rack, with an introduction by the artist, and it's full of these full-page black and white images, and I'll just, I'm just going to take you through some, I'm going to go back to them and discuss some of them. But just so you can get a sense of, I'm, I'm looking through this book. And to me, they leap off the page. They've got this incredible power. And, you know, at this point, I've been teaching the history of graphic design for 10 years. And I can see all sorts of connections. And, you know, there's Mazarelle in there. There's German woodcuts. Um, there's the British comic art. There's all sorts of connections, I can see. Um, but I don't know anything about it. This is, this is all new to me. And it's this powerful moral message as well. And so it was like, well, why don't I know about this, this artist? Why doesn't everybody know about this? Why isn't it famous? Um, I think it's it, this kind, I mean, you know, this kind of image. Um, I, I, I'm amazed, you know, the very fact that the, the sort of people I'm showing this to now were going, wow, look at that. That's, this, is, this is sort of what this paper's about, really. And it's 1939. That's when 
this book was published. So I started trying to make sense of this, trying to find out who Rag was and piece it together. So this is sort of, this is just outlining Rag's work and why I think he fell out of favour. Because we find at the front of the book there is also an inscription. It says, dedicated to all those who still believe in something. To Jim, who was one of their number, from Lucy, July 1941. So this was sent, it was given by my grandmother to my grandfather. As the war is on, um, my grandfather was actually imprisoned as a conscientious objector. He was a communist in the 1930s. He was a campaigner for peace. Um, he was called up, he refused to go. He wasn't granted official um, conscientious objector status. A lot of them weren't, most of them weren't. You had to work very hard with the tribunals to get legitimately allowed uh, not, to, not to join up. And he was put in prison. Um, he tells the story that um, he was beaten up every day, that he was taken out of his cell. Um, he was asked if he was going to fight the king and country, they, and uh, he had to say, no, sir. If he didn't say the sir, they beat him twice as hard. Um, this would have been while he was in prison. So this was a book sent by my, from my grandmother to my grandfather in prison in this context. Um, so it's worth then trying, for me, this is a, this is a very direct connection to, um, to my grandfather, to try to understand that point, that point in history, through this particular object. So, Arthur Rag was born in 1901 um, in Sheffield, very working class background. Um, he showed a prodigious talent for drawing when he was young and his mother was determined that he would go to art college. Um, he went to Sheffield Art College and at the age of 23 um, went to London to pursue a career as a graphic artist. Um, this is some of his early work, this is uh, what would have been in his portfolio. Um, when he arrived in London, um, he denied any um, influence whatsoever <laughs> um, <laughs> from Aubrey Beardsley. Um, and I think we can see there's the Vienna Secession in there. Um, there's this strong Art Nouveau influence to his work at this time. Um, and he made a living producing um, commercial work for things like the Women's Pictorial, Good Housekeeping. Hutchinson's magazine, Tatler, um, and you can see it's this kind of light, frothy, um, good time <coughs> imagery. And um, he made a lot of his meagre income at this time from producing work for opera magazine. He loved opera. Um, apparently, he would go and hang out at Covent Garden, and he would he got to know all the other people working in the opera, and he'd let him stand in the wings. And he says that at, at this time, the, um, the only time he really ate was at the buffets of these, these parties. But I show you to, to, to show the kind of work he was producing in the 1920s um, as a young commercial artist. It's quite difficult to piece together his career, I have to say. There's one biography by a woman called Judy Brooke, who was actually um, a student of his when he was working at Beltane School during the Second World War. And she actually died in the, in the process of producing the book. book. Um, so a couple of friends of hers finally put it together. So it's this very scrappy sort of fan biography. Um, 
And there's bits, um, we know about this part of his life because he, kept, he, he was going to produce his own autobiography and he writes the first bit. Unfortunately for me, it finishes before it gets to the bit I'm interested in. Um, and Brooke is much more interested in his educational work. So it's trying to piece together actually how all of this works. Um, one thing we do know is Robert Lusty of Selwyn and Blount so in 1933, a young man came to him um, with an idea for producing the Psalms for Modern Life, which would be the Psalms um, from the Bible interpreted. And Rag actually came to Lusty with um, a series, about half the series was finished. This is a proposal. And Lusty says in his, his, his autobiography, Bad to be Read, that he was absolutely blown away by these images, that they seemed to have this, this strong moral power. And he was then determined that this was going to be published. And, I mean, I assumed that Rag was deeply religious. He is from a Methodist background. Um, as I started piecing it together and uh, um, looking at the different sources, it becomes clear that he's not terribly religious as such. He's using this it, it, there's very interesting connections actually with the last paper and that idea of the moral crusade um, when we come to a pledge in a minute as well um, that he sees this you know I, I, I don't I mean he said himself he wasn't particularly he wasn't even sure if there was a God he's, he's not terribly pious um, but he chose the Psalms because he said they've still got a moral power they've got they're a window they're a, a way to talk about moral issues so you can see that this is, for example, about um, unmarried pregnancy. Um, he's looking very strongly at these issues that he feels that affect the working class. Um, marital love and the extent to which this food should be respected. But a great deal of it is to do with pacifism and the idea that, um, that there should be some form of moral crusade against the war. This is again something that's very interesting to me in that, um, remember, this is 1933, and there's already a strong peace movement in the UK. And um, there's a great deal of talk about the drumbeat for war, about rearmament and the determination for there to be another war. I think the narrative we have sold is that, of course, Hitler comes to power in Germany in 1933. Um, there's this idea that there's the rise of the Nazis and that they start to threaten Europe. And the, the, trusty British rise up against this moral, this threat, um, when of course it's clear that there's already a strong argument for war in 1933. Um, this is a headline that had been in the Daily Mail when war is justified and there was a big debate in the Daily Mail about the justification for the next war and of course Wright is very eloquently saying here um, what the, the cost of that will be. And if we look at the original dust jacket, it becomes very clear that this is a pacifist publication. Um, you know, the, it's just very obvious, I think, what we've got um, going on here. Um, it was incredibly popular. It was reprinted five times in the first edition. It sold over 100,000 copies. It was uh, voted Book of the Year uh, by the Publishers uh, Association in America. And it, it became, it, it's the sort of thing that, that would have been very well known. This man was famous at this time. 
Um, one thing that allowed it to be, um, become so popular was the involvement of this man, uh, the Reverend Dick Shepherd. Dick Shepherd had become vicar of St Martin in the Fields, just off Trafalgar Square, in 1913. Um, of course, it's right next to Charing Cross, where a lot of the soldiers left for the front. Um, Dick Shepherd determined to open the crypt as a night shelter, and um, his idea was that leaving soldiers could go there, but it was also their welcome prostitutes, um, there's stories of, of very wealthy people staggering in drunk and just flopping down on the floor. Um, the church authorities, of course, were scandalised um, because, you know, you can't have Christians going around ministering to the poor. Um, and he's very, he's a, he, he, tire, he campaigns tire, tirelessly for the disaffected. Um, and in 1924, he is the first um, vicar, the first uh, uh, cleric to actually start doing regular broadcasts on the, ra on the radio. And his Sunday broadcasts start to become incredibly popular, to the point where Rag actually recounts that um, when he and his partner were coming home from the pub, if they'd miss, if they if they left it too late to listen to uh, Shepherd's broadcast, they, it didn't matter because they could hear it coming out of all of the windows of all of the houses that they went past. So Shepherd is using this new technology of radio to disseminate this message, the, the pacifist message. Um, Sullivan and Blount approach him to do the foreword, and. Um, he creates an intro, he puts an introduction there. Um, it's, you can actually see it says introduction by HRL Shepherd Hugh Richard Laurie Shepherd. Um, so I think this is, Shepherd is somebody who's harnessing the technology of radio. Um, Rag wanted to do a book. He didn't just want to do an exhibition. He wanted to do something that would be mass produced and distributed. So similar to our postcards, as we saw in the last uh, talk, it's this idea of using these new technologies to actually start to get these ideas out there. And this is what makes it possible for so many of these physical artefacts to exist for this level of distribution. And as I say, to me, there's this, you can really see the power in this kind of imagery. Often, um, I mean, I, I should probably make a caveat at this point that um, sometimes rag work can be quite crude, I think. Um, I, th I see a sort of Hogarthian quality in there, that the subject is more important than technical flourish. Um, for example, if we look here at these, he was never any good at clouds. Whenever he puts clouds in, they always seem to look like these weird blobs. And indeed, at one point, his publisher writes back to him and says, what is the image on page 43? It just appears to be these blobs. Um, and yet, um, there seems to be, he's working deliberately in black and white because it can be reproduced so, um, so easily. And it, it has this tremendous power to it. Dick Shepherd, um, in 1930, uh, 1934, wrote a letter to the Times. Um, the Times refused to publish it, it was then subsequently published in the Manchester Guardian, where he said um, what we need is men to pledge themselves 
to peace. There needs to be this pledge. Because the assumption was, the reason it was directed at men, is that women already believe in peace. Um, and that um, there needs to be this, that, that men need to say that this is not what's necessary. They produced this printed postcard that you could then send, um, you could send to Shepherd, where it was, it was pledging to renounce war. Um, the story goes that Shepherd, uh, a few days later, was, was mortified that he didn't get any pledges. Um, and he was really, really worried and upset until a man came around from the post office and said, we haven't delivered any of the, the postcards because there's too many of them. Could you come and pick them up? <laughs> and there was 135,000 postcards. Um, from this, Shep I mean, Shepard didn't expect that. He'd blown away. And I think this shows, you know, it never really gets talked about, but it shows the strength of the peace movement at that time. And that it wasn't this inevitable um, movement towards war. Off the back of this, in 1935, Shepherd holds a rally for peace at the Albert Hall. Um, this, uh, the cover was drawn by Rag. Um, this is actually a, a, a copy of Secret Sassoon's copy. Sassoon spoke at the rally. Um, and it was an enormous success. The, the then Dick Shepherd travels the country talking to police, peace pledge union meetings. There's, shortly after this one, there's an enormous one at Devil's Dyke near Brighton. Um, and very often they have these big outdoor events. And they also run peace camps, which are um, anything from a couple of days to a week, where they'll, tent, they'll camp in tents, they have campfire songs, and it's this, this meeting of minds. But it's a big movement, and there's... Um, an enormous number of pamphlets produced. There's a collection of these pamphlets in the British Library, um, actually assembled by George Orwell. And a lot of the time, it's Rag who's produced the cover. Most of the time, they're not credited. Um, and Rag was very free and easy about this. And he's, he was ba it was like sort of an early creative commons. He, he wanted people to use his material um, because he was trying to get across a particular message. Um, again, look, clouds. <laughs> awful. Um, but that doesn't matter. I think that this te this technical proficiency, it, 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 almost its crudeness, adds to its muscularity, to the power of the images. Um, but the point I'm making, as I say, is that this man was very well known. That this is he's very famous at this time. Um, oh, this is a, this is Dick Shepherd at one of the the peace rallies. Um, Shepherd spoke, as I say, spoke all over the country. Um, I've actually found that in early 1937, he spoke at a rally in Hull, um, which is where my family is from. I know that my grandparents' first date was a Peace Pledge Union meeting, so it could have been that meeting. Um, I, sp I don't suppose I'll ever know, but it's, uh, I would like to know a little bit more about it. it I, I, to me, it's these personal connections which really bring it alive. Because in the end, um, what I discover, this is the original du du uh, dust jacket, um, is that this is, I mean, and I, I okay, I would, um, I would say go and buy it. You can get it online, it only costs a few pounds. It's not, this is not a precious thing. But to me, of course, it's a tremendously precious object. Um, and 
you know, for me, this is the beginning of a research process, really. This is something that I now need to take on and try and piece together in more detail. Um, simply because I see so many connections and so many resonances in these images, that there's stylistic connections, um, but also that idea of, of its connection to photography and the moral message that we see contained within it. Um, all the way through this book, what I discovered is that this is a collection of the work that he'd been doing between 30, uh, 35 and 39. A lot of the stuff had appeared in magazines and newspapers, uh, pamphlets. But what he does here is, alongside the images a lot of the time, he's got these little snippets. There's sort of this Benjaminian bricolage of putting together quotations and different elements and contrasting images with bits of text. Um, so I think it's this really interesting text on that sort of level. But to me, at most, its most important quality is its moral power and the extent to which this exists as something that reminds us that there was this time in British history where the left and um, uh, the peace movement were powerful and active and really made a difference. Um, and that that's not partisan, that that was something that was coming from a particular um, moral tradition in uh, British politics and British graphic design. After the war, um, he made his living producing album covers for Argo. This is the first um, Dylan Thomas Richard Burton Underbilt Wood, um, which he did the cover for. Um, and again, I, he, he was quite bitter after the war. He, was, um, he didn't make a huge amount of money. Um, and he was forgotten. Nobody really remembered him, and I think this is because he was a pacifist, and because it was important to the narrative of British history that there'd been this unified reaction to the threat of Nazism, and that simply, culturally, we couldn't accept the idea that there'd been this alternative narrative, this alternative history. But for me, in a very material sense, in my connection to this, I find um, the truth of this, I find this connection, in this book, That Kingdom Come. Thank you very much.